Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Karen S. Ho. She's a Senior Director of Translational Medicine at, uh, I hope I pronounce it right, CLEAN, C-L-E-N-E. At CLEAN, Karen's responsible for translating preclinical success to uh, CLEAN's lead drug assets. And so, you know, actual medical value and applicability to clinical applications and diseases. So she's, uh, I guess, from benchtop to, uh, to in-clinic is, is what it sounds like. So, Karen, thanks for coming. Thanks so much for inviting me, Rich. Yeah, did I capture uh, your job function properly, or, or how would you describe it? Absolutely. So I'm head of translational medicine here at CLEAN, and um, I basically run the preclinical studies that will take our lead drug assets and establish their efficacy and safety in animal and cellular models, and then give that over to our chief medical officer, Robert Glansman, who will then uh, take it into the clinic. So the clinical trial process, you're on the front end of that. And I guess you're preparing everything and the whole case and all the data and all that for submission for clinical trials. Is that how it works? Yes, that's exactly right. That's my role. Okay, very good. What, what kind of neurodegenerative disease? It seems like there's uh, many, many out there. Yes, there are many neurodegenerative diseases out there. 
Um, right now, we are focused on amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. We're focused on my multiple sclerosis, and we're also focused on Parkinson's disease. Mm, okay. So would it be okay to talk about ALS first and maybe some um, you know, multiple sclerosis? Not that I don't want to talk about Parkinson's, but I've spoken to a few people about that, but ALS has been pretty rare so far and multiple sclerosis as well. So maybe we could start with ALS. What what does the condition do to people? I know it's supposed to be pretty horrible. And what application are you working on? Yes, absolutely. So um, you've actually interviewed another key person in the ALS field on the podcast series. And as we know, ALS is a very aggressive neurodegenerative disease that destroys the motor neurons of both the upper and lower spinal cord. And so what happens is that functional neurological activities such as walking, talking, breathing are affected. And unfortunately, individuals usually live between three to five years after they are diagnosed with ALS. So it's an aggressive disease that's in great need of therapeutic intervention. I believe Stephen Hawking had it. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Stephen Hawking also had it. And what's remarkable about many of the individuals who had and have ALS is that they are not cognitively impaired. So they know exactly what is happening to them and can have to watch as their body deteriorates, but their mind remains intact. Yeah, that's horrible. In Stephen Hawking's case, he seems to have you know, lived 40, I think it was almost 50 years with the condition. Why do you think that he lived so much longer than the average? You're touching on a very good point, and that is that we do not understand as scientists right now all of the intricacies and the mechanism of disease that we need to in order to really fully address uh, the challenges of ALS. We don't understand why there are some individuals that live longer than others. We don't understand why some forms of ALS are so much more aggressive and progressive. And we also don't understand entirely the molecular mechanism of disease. What exactly happens inside of the motor neurons that make them deteriorate so quickly? Because as you may know, ALS actually affects to a greater degree healthy athletic people, um, members of the military and members of the NFL have actually been shown to be more prone and more susceptible to developing ALS than the general population. Why would healthier people be affected by such an aggressive and devastating disease? We still don't have those answers. If it affects the motor neurons and athletes, I would think are utilizing their motor neurons, maybe switching them on and off, on and off, on and off far more times than a sedentary person. Maybe by actuating them so much, that's for some reason contributing to the degeneration. Absolutely. So you're touching on an extremely important point, and that is an argument of bioenergetic failure driving neurodegenerative disease in a number of different types of neurodegenerative disease. 
I'll start with ALS, but I'll tell you the story of why we think our one drug at Clean, called CNMAU8, can actually address multiple neurodegenerative diseases that present very differently in the clinic. And that is because we think that many neurodegenerative diseases share a common element, and that is of a neurodegenerative failure of energy production and utilization. So as you may know, ATP, the currency of energy in all living things, is highly demanded by the brain. The brain is only 2% of the body by weight, but it uses up 20% of the body's energetic budget. So it is using up a great deal of energy in order to properly function. We also know that as we age, the ability to keep up with the brain's energetic demands actually goes down with time. So our efficiency at making the ATP that's necessary for running the entire brain goes down as we age. And neurodegenerative diseases in general show up with aging. Aging is the highest risk factor for developing neurodegenerative disease. Quick question. So in athletes in particular, does ALS tend to come after they've been in their career for a number of years? Or does it happen in the beginning? Does it have any discernible pattern that would support maybe, quote unquote, like burning out the motor neuron systems? Yes. So that's an excellent question. Athletes use energy quite a bit. And as you know, NFL players take quite a few hits to the head as well as suffer from concussions. And it turns out the longer the football players that were studied in this 19, over 19,000 NFL player study that was published in JAMA, what they found was that the longer an NFL football player spent on the field, the higher the risk they were of developing a disease like ALS. So it may be not only the high energy involved in playing the sport, but also the hits to the head and the concussions and various injuries that the neurons had to use energy to repair that gave them a higher risk for developing this disease. So in other sports, is it less prevalent, like soccer or you know other I mean lower contact sports where there's less physical smashing of the person? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in fact, I haven't seen any studies for soccer, but as we know, there are baseball players that also have developed the disease. And of course, the famous Lou Gehrig, um, after which the disease is colloquially named, it was a, a great Yankees baseball player, one of the greatest in baseball history. And so there are definitely connections between sports, between military service and ALS. What about mitochondrial uh, function and the density or the number of them in, in the, you know, the applicable cell types? Has anyone correlated like, uh, you know, do mitochondria tend to be damaged in people that have ALS or there's lower numbers? That's an excellent point, Rich. So basically what we know is that, as I was saying, the brain has many different um, functions and is very, very energetically demanding. But we also know that in order to function, there are many different neural subtypes that have to be functional in the brain. There are 
there are GABAergic neurons, there are interneurons, there are dopaminergic neurons, hippocampal neurons, cortical neurons, and even within those cells, there are other cell types. So what has been recently found is that there are certain subtypes within the brain that are even more energetically demanding than others. And intriguingly enough, it is those specific subtypes that are operating at maximal energetic capacity, like motor neurons, like dopaminergic neurons, like hippocampal neurons, that are most affected in the common neurodegenerative diseases, such as ALS, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, and Alzheimer's disease. So if you do want to believe that mitochondrial function is key to um, the deterioration and driving some of the neurodegenerative diseases, then in fact, that is maybe the part of the disease pathophysiology that we should be going after, that we should be trying to help. And in fact, that's what our drug CNMAU8 is trying to do and is designed to do. Is there, uh, since there's so many different types of neurons, is there a patterning? Like does ALS provide a signature where certain types are more damaged than others? And over time, certain ones will, let's say, diminish and be damaged preferentially versus others? Yes. And so why is it then that there are so many populations of neurons that are, say, hyper vulnerable to this energetic deficit, and yet we have many different types of diseases? Well, it turns out that there are probably environmental and genetic factors, possibly multiple genetic factors that can predispose a person to being more sensitive in their, for example, dopaminergic cells or in their motor neurons to developing Parkinson's disease versus ALS than others. And so there's a combination of genetic factors, environmental factors, and um, just daily living that can, in, in aging, of course, that can increase risk for one neurodegenerative disease over another. However, what is shared by all of these neurodegenerative diseases is this deficit in, as you were mentioning, mitochondrial function, which then leads to a deficit of ATP, which then leads to neurons not being able to function as well as they could because they can't keep up with energetic demand. Well, like in cancer, um, instead of oxidative phosphorylation, I know there's a fermentation process going on. Has that been observed, uh, the neurons, in order to get the ATP they need? Do they shunt to a different metabolic pathway and that maybe causes this problem? Yes, that's exactly right. So usually neurons are highly dependent on oxidative phosphorylation, which is the process that is responsible, that mitochondria are responsible for. And they do not really use glycolysis that much to produce the energy that they need. But there are other cells that surround them called astrocytes and oligodendrocytes that actually preferentially use glycolysis, or as you refer to it, the fermentation process in order to generate energy. Now, when a neuron is starved for energy because the mitochondria are no longer functioning properly or can't be made uh, to produce enough ATP because they become damaged, for example, 
then they do turn to other sources of energy in order to hopefully generate enough to survive. And in fact, that may be why it takes us a while to diagnose properly the neurodegenerative diseases, because those neurons and their support cells, the astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, are fighting really hard to keep up with energetic demand. For example, in in, uh, Parkinson's disease, over 30% of dopaminergic neurons are usually dead by the time a person gets diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And that's because those neurons have been fighting really hard to function and survive long enough so that the clinical features aren't detected until too many of them have died. How does the drug that you guys are working on work? What is the target and how does it work? Yeah, so that's that's the secret sauce, right? So our drug is very unique in that it's not a small molecule like Tylenol or aspirin. It's not a biologic like monoclonal antibodies. It is actually a suspension of nanocrystals of gold. It might be really surprising to think, wow, so you're using this metal to treat neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, we're all familiar with gold, right? Gold has been treasured for centuries for jewelry, as bullion bars, um, as monetary exchange. Why would we be using it therapeutically to treat these very difficult to treat, challenging neurodegenerative diseases? Well, it turns out that the reason that we treasure gold is because it really is chemically inert in its bulk form. So for example, my wedding ring, it's gold, and I would not eat my wedding ring as treatment for any of the neurodegenerative diseases because it does not corrode, it's shiny, and that's why we treasure it. But if you take gold and make it at the nanoscale and make it in, a, in the proprietary special way that we do, into crystals of gold in which the atoms of gold are aligned in patterns and shapes that are faceted, like your diamond, the the, the cut diamond of a diamond ring. Then you have something that is highly catalytically active, very reactive. And that very reactive little particle of gold can actually stimulate energy production inside of diseased cells. So all this time we've been talking about the energetic deficits that are known to be associated with neurodegenerative diseases. And we think that the treatment would be to go after the energetic deficit by making, by providing to neurons and glial cells a new way of making more energy more efficiently so that those cells can fight against the oxidative stress, and the multiple disease stressors that those cells are now fighting against. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. 
While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Nanoparticle suspension of gold, as best you can explain without you know, getting into proprietary stuff, but anything you could say about the mechanism of action, how it works? Yeah, so the mechanism of action is actually uh, very similar to the reaction that takes place in mitochondria. So mitochondria are able to take the food that we eat. Well, uh, there are a couple of reactions that occur before the mitochondria get involved. But basically what the idea is, is that, you know, we take in food, that food gets converted to a, an energetic sugar called glucose. Glucose can then be broken down in a process called glycolysis, which then feeds some metabolites into the mitochondria, which can then take those metabolites and change them into ATP, the currency of energy. Basically, what our gold can do is function a little bit like the mitochondria in the sense that they make these metabolites more efficient and more available to mitochondria in order to make that ATP. So they are there to help convert this metabolite called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide hydride into NAD. And when there's more NAD around, then the mitochondria can make ATP much more efficiently. Not only that, but NAD is also used as a sensor inside the cell to where the cell can tell whether or not it has enough energy to function, to regulate more of its metabolic uh, neuronal processes, to synaptically strengthen some of its synapses. It uses NAD as that sensor. And so if NAD levels fall, then the cell knows it's in trouble and it needs to make more ATP. Yeah, I've seen NAD plus as a supplement. So maybe the, the same theory applies there. If you take that and supplement with it, um, maybe it acts to, uh, you know, through its reduction, perhaps it acts in the same way. I don't know. So yes, the mechanism is the same. However, the NAD that can be taken as a supplement, first of all, we can't take NAD itself. And that's because it's highly labile, just like taking ATP. ATP would be snapped up by the first blood cell or the first, you know, um, moment that it could be taken up and used up immediately. It would never get to the brain because it's so uh, valuable to all cells that the cell, the first cell it touches will be like, okay, I want this and I'm going to use it and change it in, and then use up its energy. The same is true for NAD itself. It's too labile to actually be used as a supplement. The supplement that you may be referring to is nicotinamide riboside, which is actually a precursor for NAD. The body can take in nicotinamide riboside, convert it to NAD, and then that NAD can be used. The problem is that nicotinamide riboside, first of all, might have problems getting across the blood-brain barrier. 
barrier. I've heard this by a number of different colleagues and scientists who are saying that that is one of the problems of nicotinamide riboside. It might be great for treating something in the liver, but not necessarily get enough into the brain to make a difference. The second thing is that we don't want to flood all cells all over the body with different levels of, of nicotinamide riboside. We want it to get to the place where it would make the most difference, especially for neurodegenerative disease. The thing about these gold nanoparticles and gold nanocrystals that we make is that they're so small, they're actually smaller than mitochondria. So you drink them, they go through your gut, they pass out of your gut into the bloodstream. They pass out of your bloodstream through the blood-brain barrier to your brain. They get to the neurons that need the, and the glial cells that need those gold nanoparticles. And then they do their magic because that's where they can catalytically act on the reactants and the substrates that are already there in the brain to help convert them into something that's useful NAD and ATP for those neurons to use. Okay, makes sense. Um, so what stage are you at with this particular product? Is it, is it in clinical trials? And if so, what stage? Or how long until uh, you can determine clinical efficacy? Yeah, so the clinical stage that CNMAU8 is in is phase two and phase three clinical trials. So on the basis of some very robust remyelination and neuroprotection data that we obtained in animals and cell lines, we were able to um, get approval from the FDA to start clinical trials. And we are now uh, running several clinical trials and we finished some of them in ALS, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. One of the most exciting trials that we are awaiting results from is the Healy platform trial, which we were competitively selected to participate in. A platform trial is a trial in which several drugs, several candidate drugs can be tested all at once using a master protocol. And this was an um, innovation of Merit Sudovich and her team at the Massachusetts General Hospital at, at Harvard. And basically what happened was an ALS patient at the time was able to raise and donate $45 million. His name was Sean Healy. He unfortunately passed away. But Sean Healy donated this amount of money in order to run and start the Healy Platform Trials. Uh, we were honored to be selected as one of the first candidate drugs to be tested in this regime. And in fact, the trial is nearly over. We have finished enrollment for that trial, and we are looking forward to receiving results by mid to, to later this year. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, and then moving on just for a, little, a bit to multiple sclerosis, if you would, uh, could you describe that condition, and then maybe we could talk about what you're working on in regards to that. Absolutely. Um, there is one other thing I would like to mention about our work in ALS, though, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So in November of 2021, so just last November, we reported out top-line results from a an ALS placebo-controlled randomized trial. It was a phase two trial that was run in Australia. And the exciting thing about this trial, we learned a lot of, 
a, a lot of information from it. It involved patients with early ALS, and it involves only 45 patients, but even from the small phase two trial, we learned that there are multiple clinical measures of disease that seem to be affected and improved by CNMAUA treatment. Now, the way um, clinical trials are designed, we have to name for the FDA our primary endpoint, which is the goal of the trial. Unfortunately, we missed the primary endpoint statistically, but we learned a lot from that miss. And the reason is this. We were using a neurophysiologic measure of limb function to measure motor unit preservation. So motor units are the units of contact between motor, motor neurons and muscle in limb um, muscles. It turns out that there is limb onset ALS and bulbar onset ALS. We took all comers. So we took about 27% bulbar onset patients and the rest of them were limb onset patients. In the limb onset patient subgroup, which is a pre-specified subgroup for analysis, we actually improved or slowed the progression of their motor unit loss by 45%, which was exactly on target and how that clinical trial was designed to improve things by 45 to 50%. But we missed the primary oh, statistically because bulbar onset, and we did not know this, bulbar onset patients don't decline early in their disease. So if they don't decline, there's nothing to improve. And since there was nothing to improve, they kind of diluted the improvement that we saw in the limb onset patients. So okay. even though it was a failed, quote unquote, failed clinical trial, the learning from that was rich. Not only that, we also were able to show that in all of the other objective clinical measures, both bulbar onset and limb onset patients improved when they were given CNMAUA treatment as compared to the placebo controls. And we are ongoing, we've offered an open label extension to this trial, meaning that once the trial is over from its double blind period, anyone who wants to can enroll in the open label extension knowing that they're getting active drug. 90% of the eligible patients decided that they wanted to participate in our OLE. And we have ongoing survival studies that show that we just um, announced at the annual meeting for neurology uh, that we can show survival benefits to taking CNMA weight in comparison with the same patient's predicted survival based on mathematical modeling that came out of NCALS. And that's a validated mathematical model that can predict based on baseline scores, how that patient and when that patient might die. Okay. Well, very good. Um, again, just briefly touching on multiple sclerosis. Can you just talk a little bit about that condition? And again, what, uh, what you're working on in that regard? Yes. Multiple sclerosis, as you know, is extremely different from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Why in the world would we think that CNMAU8 could address both of these two very different diseases? 
Well, multiple sclerosis is a, an immune inflammatory disease in which the body's own immune system starts to attack the myelin sheath in the brain. Myelin is extremely important in the brain because it allows neurons to function. It's basically like if you know um, the electrical wires that wire our house, they're, they're covered with this conductive um, protective like plastic coating that doesn't allow the electrons to jump from wire to wire. And it allows the electrons to flow through that wire really quickly so that when we flick the light switch, the light goes on and there's no waiting or lag period where, you know, the electrons don't know where to go. And then finally they get to the light bulb. Well, when the myelin is destroyed, that's what happens in the brain is that there's short circuiting, there's no longer conductance, or there can be very latent conductance, that meaning slow, slow transmission of the signals from neuron to neuron. And that's a pretty devastating disease. And when a neuron lacks its myelin sheath, for too long, that neuron starts to die. So it's a neurodegenerative disease as well. What we also know in multiple sclerosis is that there are, there's only one cell type that can make myelin in the brain, and that's called the oligodendrocyte. And in lesions where the myelin has been destroyed in a multiple sclerosis brain, there are actually oligodendrocytes that are sitting right there next to the lesion but they aren't activated to remake the myelin. The question is why? Well, it turns out that work from Jack and Tell's lab and various other labs have shown that the multiple sclerosis brain is so inflammatory and is so deprived of the nutrients involved that would keep the oligodendrocytes healthy, that instead of having enough energy to generate myelin, which is basically they need to generate 100,000 proteins per minute and thousands of lipid molecules per second in order to myelinate, that is, as you can imagine, highly energetically demanding. They sit there and they try to survive until the nutrient situation becomes better. Now, if you provide them in, let's say, a culture dish with enough nutrients, they can then myelinate. So there's nothing wrong with the oligodendrocytes other than maybe they need an energetic boost. And that is what we think CNMA weight can do providing an energetic boost, this time not to the neurons themselves, although we can neuroprotect them from dying by, protecting, by providing CNMA to that, but also by targeting the oligodendrocytes that are needed for remyelination. So this trial, Visionary MS, was actually designed, and that's a phase two randomized placebo-controlled study. It was designed to measure whether or not people with multiple sclerosis and with visionary impairment actually could um, show improvements or stabilization in their vision loss associated with multiple sclerosis. That trial, we're also awaiting unblinding the data for. So I can't tell you anything about unblinded data, meaning that we don't know who has been given placebo and who has yet been given active drug yet, but we have reported in some international conferences for multiple sclerosis, some of our preliminary data from this trial, and we're encouraged by that preliminary data. And the reason is this, the way we decided to analyze the blinded data 
And keep in mind, that means we don't know which patients have gotten placebo, which patients have gotten active. We decided to choose those multiple sclerosis, multiple sclerosis patients that were least affected. So we had a group of least affected, pretty healthy patients in the trial to begin with before they were given any drug. We decided to use these patients as the comparator group. And then we compared them to the entire group as a whole, as the entire group either took treatment or took placebo over the 48 weeks of study. And what we're seeing, incidentally enough, is an improvement of the entire group, either placebo or actively treated drug, an improvement of the, the entire group over 48 weeks compared to the most healthy baseline individuals. Why do you think that is? Well, it could be for two reasons. One, there's a massive placebo effect that, you know, does happen in clinical trials. Or it could be that there is an active response to CNMA weight in those patients that have been given CNMA weight, and that response is actually improving their scores over baseline. Well, scores, but what about uh, you know their appearance and their quality of life and everything? Yeah, so that that's a great great question. Basically, the data that we're collecting from that trial involves either doing a low contrast letter acuity eye test. So that means we've got the same eye chart that you would use anytime you go to see an optometrist or ophthalmologist, you know, with the letters. But in this case, in, instead of having black letters on a white background, we use grayed out letters on a white background, which actually is very hard for a person affected with multiple sclerosis and the vision to distinguish. And so it's a functional measure of their eye uh, ability, of their seeing ability. And that is the measure that we see improving over time. We also measure what's called a multi-scale functional improvement composite score. And that composite score is composed of four different tests. One is the vision test. Another is a nine-hole peg test, which means how can you use your little your finger dexterity to put little pegs into holes, and how fast can you do it? There's a simple digits modality test, which is a test of working memory, and there's a 25-minute walk test. All of these um, functions are actually impaired in multiple sclerosis patients. And again, we're seeing an entire group improvement over the best baseline controls um, in the same method of analysis that I described previously. So we're encouraged by these results, but we'll need to know what really is happening when the trial is finalized and unblinded. Again, that's going to happen later this year. So lots of exciting things for us on the horizon. Excellent. Well, Garrett, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work, about Clean's work? Where can they go? Well, that would be our website, www.clean.com. They can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. On www.clean.com, I do have to point out that we have a very cool animation video that actually shows you the gold nanocrystals in action and what enzymatic 
uh, reactions they're catalyzing. How do they work to catalyze the NADH to NAD plus and the revival of the neural cells and all of that? It's a, it's a, Pretty cool little video that we've got there. We've also posted all of our publications and any of our press releases. So if you want to follow any of our developments, that is exactly where I'd go. Um, I'd also like to call out a completely independent post that was written by Dr. Simon Stott of Cure Parkinson's Disease Trust. He entitled it, There's Gold in Them the Brains. And he actually focused on CNMAU8 and Clean's work, independent of talking to us at all. We didn't know who he was until he actually posted about us. And it's a brilliant discussion from a scientist's point of view of what CNMAU8 is doing. And he's got some cool videos on there too, to explain how gold might be acting. And it's all very nicely scientifically documented and accurate. So those are two resources. Okay. Well, excellent. I mean, you're working on some serious, serious conditions that really debilitate and kill people. So it's it's a good thing what your company's doing. Thank, thank you for what you do. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk with you. Oh, hey, Karen, one last thing I forgot to ask you. I believe um, there's literally a holiday related to Luke Gehrig coming up. Um, you, I, I don't know. I don't know yes. if I have it right or not. But go ahead. Yes. On June 2nd, that is Lou Gehrig Day, and it recognizes the famous baseball player who has been known as one of the greatest first basemen in history. He was also known as the Iron Horse because of his prowess as a hitter, and he tragically died of ALS at the age of 38 at what should have been the height of his career. In his famous farewell speech in Yankee Stadium, he called himself the luckiest man alive because of all the great people that he had in his life. He concluded that speech by saying, I got a bad break, but I have an awful lot to live for. So we at Clean are a little company with a lot of heart, fighting for people who got a bad break, but who show us every day with their courage and strength that they too have a lot to live for. And with very hard work, literally round the clock at Clean, we are striving to bring about an innovation that may change the world for these people. An innovation that is not only a new way to treat some of the scariest and most devastating diseases that humanity currently faces, but also to bring the world a new way to look at these diseases through the lens of energetic catalytic repair and restoration. Excellent. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.